to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. Good morning. It's good to be here to see some faces I've not seen since the last visit and uh, also see some old faces. So um, what a privilege to be with you uh, here in this new space. And um, I'm thankful I get to, to share God's Word with you this morning. You have been sojourn in a series this summer going through the Psalms, um, looking at the, this larger theme of intimacy with God and, and how do we, as His people, how do we respond to that? How do, how do we posture ourselves before God who is, is so good? You've heard sermons this summer on how... Because of who God is, you can be a people of hope because He is the God of all hope, the God of all comfort. You can be a people who are confident despite the world swirling around us. You can be a people who are confident in light of the God who always comes through. You, you are called as the church to be a people of gratitude because God is our provider. We're meant to be a humble people. Right, one of the one of the psalms exhorted you this summer talked about being humble, not just because God is all powerful and all majestic and glorious. That's true, and we are we're not that if we're anything, right? But also because that same God humbles Himself. He stoops to serve His people. He washes the feet of disciples, and He He's that example for us. The last few weeks. Maybe you've heard that we're meant to be a people who, uh, against the, our own nature, are people who confess our sin and repent of sin. Because now, because God is so good, those words aren't bad words, confess and repent. They're actually freedom words. I can come, I can run to God and say, God, I, I screwed up again. We are a people that confess and repent sin to one another and to the Lord, because He's so ready to forgive us. And I think if, if, if we just knew those things, if we just took those, those lessons and those began to change us, what a difference that would make. My life and your life, what rich lessons. Well, this morning we're going to look at another psalm, Psalm 45. If you have your Bibles, you can you can turn there. I'll have the verses up on the screen as we go. Um, and the, the, the theme that we want to see today is, is we want to see how God is going to make us into a people who are in awe of Him. What would it look like if we were in awe of God, if we thrilled to know Him? We are overcome by the goodness of God. I have a friend who, who says throughout the Bible, you'll encounter fainting verses, verses that if we really understood them, we'd just pass out. They're so good. They're so amazing. Is that really true? Fainting verses. And I think this is 
just a fainting chapter. The whole psalm is meant to help us to see God so clearly that we just are overwhelmed by his goodness. And I think it's important because if you're like me, and you might not be, and that'd probably be a good thing um, for you, (laughs) but if you're like me, you have a tendency to disbelieve the goodness of God. You wake up in the morning, if you're like me, and the first thought isn't, oh God, you're so good, I'm thankful for this day, I'm so ready to, to walk with you and just enjoy you today. Instead, it may be something like, Oh, I better have a quiet time or God's going to be disappointed with me. I better get this done. I, um, if you're like me, in your flesh, sometimes we slip into this thought that maybe God is just waiting to catch us in the act. We know he, he, he loves us because he has to love everyone, but sometimes it feels like maybe that God is just putting up with you or tolerating you. Is that resonating at all? But I think Psalm 45 is going to help because it's going to help us see God's goodness from another angle. Yes, John 3.16, God so loves the world. is true. You're involved in that. But we're going to see that he, his affection is set on you. This is the kind of God that isn't just waiting to catch you in the act, but he's waiting to sweep you up into his family, into his love. Uh, Psalm 45 is uh, part of a group of psalms called the Royal Psalms. So that's lifted up there, right? Uh, Called the Royal Psalms. And and the Royal Psalms, on the one hand, they're trying to, they're they're speaking to kings. They're speaking to leaders of, of Israel, of the earth. Um, They're trying to show us what good rule looks like, what a just, merciful, truthful, righteous rule would look like on planet Earth. Kings, if if you want to know how to rule, this is how to do it. Read the royal Psalms. But on the other hand, it becomes clear in many of these, especially Psalm 45, that the point of all this instruction for earthly kings isn't earthly rule by humans. The point of all this is actually that one day God is going to come and he's going to rule himself. We're not looking for the perfected, if we can just get the right president in office and if he would just believe like we do just enough, then maybe we'll have a little bit of a utopia here in our country. The Bible never pretends that that's going to happen. But it does say again and again and again that one day God himself will come, will put an end to all injustice, all suffering, all kings, prime ministers, presidents, emperors, and he will be our good king. And Psalm 45 is going to help us see that. So before we get into the words of the psalm, um, I want you to look at the title. So if you have your Bibles there, sometimes at the top of a, of a psalm, you'll get some, some text up there. Now, uh, I'm, I'm reading from the ESV, and at the top it says, Your throne, O God, is forever. Does yours, anyone have that in theirs? So ignore that. that that's, that's, one of our editors added that in. So that's, that's not actually part of the psalm. It's just trying to help you know what, what might be coming, right? It, it's helpful, but ignore it for now. Um, but I want you to look beneath that, because the rest of it is a part of the psalm. 
The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and there in the Hebrew, you'll see um, what's translated in our English Bibles this way. First, I want you to notice who who authors the psalm. Who wrote Psalm 45 according to the text there? You see that? It's written by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. There are several psalms written by them. Psalm 42, one of my favorites. Uh, But who are they? Who are these sons of Korah? Well, in the book of Exodus, uh, the second book of the Bible, we meet a man named Korah, and he's a cousin to Moses. So if you know Moses, he's pretty famous there, but he's got a cousin named Korah. And we all have cousins like this, which we'll see. (laughs) Because in the fourth book of the Bible, in the book of Numbers, in chapter 16, we find out that Korah doesn't like it that God has chosen Moses to lead his people. He doesn't like it that God has chosen Aaron to be the high priest. And so Korah, some of his family members, some of his buddies, they gather essentially a mob of about 250 people, and they bring their, that little force against Moses and Aaron and says, we think God got it wrong. We don't think you need to be in charge. Why do you think you deserve all this power, all this authority? We're going to take it. And so in response, the Lord says to the people of Israel, get away from Korah and this little mob of 250 people. Move away. Run. Move back. Step back. Because in um, Numbers 16, verse 32, it says, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. That's intense. But I want you to see in Numbers 26, so 10 chapters later, there at the end of the book of Numbers, we get actually a a kind of rehearsal, a retelling of that story of what happened to Korah's family. And in Numbers 26, it ends with this line, but the sons of Korah did not die. Right? So this, this group of family members and, and fellow thugs gathered against God. But somehow, we don't get any detail. All we know is that this group of men, these sons of Korah, they didn't die. So here we are in Psalm 45 again. We encounter a group of men descended from Korah who should be dead. They should be dead. Men who therefore understand what it means to encounter God's mercy. Think about it. Even if, it was, even if this is written, what, 200, 400 years after the Exodus. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I have a friend who's um, he's Australian. His great, 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 great aunt was, she, she was convicted of a, of a crime in England. And the option was, Either you die for this or we'll send you to this prison colony we call Australia today. Either you die or you go to Australia. My friend is alive because this great, 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 somewhere up the family tree, she said, well, I'll go to Australia instead of die. That's like these sons of Korah. They're dead men walking. And let's look at what they choose to write. What's it say there in your in your translations. What kind of a song is this? Mine says a love song. Some translations say a wedding song or a song of love. A love song. So these, 
these men who should be dead, who have graciously been spared by God, they're writing a love song. That's odd, I think. It seems, seems weird to me at first glance. But we're going to see that the song is actually written to the king. And the sons of Korah, they're going to answer three questions for us. They're going to tell us, who is the king? Who's the king that this love song is written to? What's he like? What's the king like? And then what's he after? What's the king want? Okay, who's the king? What's he like? And what's he after? Look at verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The first thing I want you to notice is the attitude of the writer. Is this someone who is disinterested? We already know it's a love song. We see that first line. Are they disinterested? Are they thinking, well, you know, I'm a poet, and I guess I need to write another poem, and um, you know, I need to practice, and so I'll just try to throw out a few lines here. And Is that what's happening? No, not at all. They are, they're not just trying to write an intellectual thesis, or they're not just trying to pump out words for the sake of words. It's a love song, and they sound in love. In fact, the word there that's translated as overflows, uh, there in the English, the, the word is also used, the same word is used for what happens inside a skillet. When grease is heated up and it starts popping. And bo- this, it's the same word. John Calvin translates it as boiling over. My heart boils over. <laughs> With a pleasing theme. Something that can't be contained. This is not disinterested. This is affectionate language, right? We see this in Psalms regularly, language not just of worship, but of longing. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Psalm 27, 4, I think you guys were in Psalm 27 recently. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Psalm 42 1, as the deer pants, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 42 1. This is the language. In these psalms, the language of a lover. Could you imagine? I pull out my phone. It's over there right now. I call my wife. Her name's Megan. She says hello. And I say, Megan, who, who do I have but you? There's, there's no one else I desire besides you. When can I see you again? When can I be with you? You're all that I want. This is, you are all that my heart's desired. I just want to gaze upon you. I want to be with you. When can I see you, Megan? That's, that's the language of a lover, of desire. And so these sons of Korah, they're, they're employing that language. So who are they writing about? Well, it says there, I address my verses to the king. 
they're writing this way to the king. Now, is this just any old king? Is this Henry VIII? Is this even King David? Let's look. Let's look at verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Who is this? Who is this king? If you're not familiar with the Bible, I th- you, you could miss this. I don't know. But elsewhere in Scripture, who would, who would ever be talked about this way? Oh, mighty one, in splendor and majesty, go forth. Who do we talk about that way? It's never a human. It's never a human. It's always God. And in case that wasn't clear, look at the next couple of verses. Write out victoriously, let the peoples fall under you. And then verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So the king is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The the king is God. But in verse 7, we see the king is also anointed by God. Look at that. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the king is God, and he's also somehow anointed by God. How does that work? Well, in the Christian faith, what kind of God do we have? We have one God. There's one God. But this God exists as a trinity. That's the, the word we use, but as a father, son, and spirit. All three, fully God, one God, somehow relating with one another, somehow overflowing in love and glory together as one God. And, and the, the, in the New Testament, there's a book called, the, the, called Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, quotes these verses from Psalm 45. And he tells us, the writer of the Hebrews says that um, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. This is the Father, God the Father, speaking to Jesus. So who is this king in Psalm 45 specifically? It's Jesus, Hebrews tells us. God, your God, has anointed you, Jesus, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Let's learn a little bit more about this king. I want to know what he's like. In fact, I I, I want to get into some details here and and figure out what he smells like. What does he smell like? The next verse, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. So apparently he smells great. The king smells good. Um, But you should know that those, those scents, those those spices and things, this is not Old Spice, okay? This is not the 1000 BC equivalent to Axe Body Spray, anything like that. In fact, a king at this time wouldn't wear these things. This is not typical kingly cologne. What are these spices and oils used for? Well, myrrh and cassia 
myrrh and cassia, they're both used to create a special incense that can only be used in God's temple. That's the only place it's ever allowed to be used, right? And, the only, and so you've got priests who will take this incense and they'll anoint the altar with it. They'll anoint the lampstand with it. They'll, they'll cover the, the tabernacle and then the temple with it because this, this incense is meant to make things holy. You anoint the altar to sanctify it to the Lord. That's the only place this can be used. So he smells, this king smells like the temple. He smells like a, a priest somehow. He smells like an altar, like incense. That's myrrh and cassia. Let's go to another place to see about these, these aloes. I'm going to read to you from John 19. Jesus has just died on the cross at this point. And then in verse 38 of John 19, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier in John 3, you might remember, had come to Jesus by night. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Myrrh and aloes are used together for burial, to prepare a body to be buried. And so these sons of Korah are saying, oh, great king, you smell like a corpse. You smell like a dead man. So let's put these together. The, the, some of these remind us of the temple. Some of these are all about burial, all about a death. And so this king smells like a sacrifice. He smells like a sacrifice of a temple, in the temple of God, something that has died in the place of someone else to make peace with God. That's what he smells like. And the sons of Korah think it's glorious. You smell awesome. Because you smell like someone who's laid his life down for, for others in the temple of God. And that's how Jesus is described throughout the New Testament, isn't he? He's the, he's the true temple, right? He, he, he's the place where you go to meet with God. He's the true high priest, He's the one that stands between humanity and God and between God and humanity. He's the one you go to. He's the true sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could not forgive sin, but by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those being sanctified. So again, we, we know who he is. This is Jesus. And we know he smells good like incense. Now we want to dig deeper. Why are the sons of Korah so excited to praise Jesus? Let's rewind for a moment to verse 2. You are the sons of Korah, right? You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. That first line for me is striking. Dudes today don't describe other dudes that way, do we? You're the most handsome of the sons of men. It's striking. It doesn't seem very manly for us, but friends, men, this is the most manly thing you can do is to be overwhelmed by the goodness of God. 
The most masculine inclination you could ever have. And women, when you are living out the truest design of God for, for, for what a real woman is, is when you are overcome with joy in Jesus. And I think the presence of affection here is serious. I think it's serious. Right now, how do you feel about Jesus? How do you feel about Jesus? When Bible translators, even just in English, have tried to capture this language, they've really struggled. So, right, that says, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Here are some other ways that this has been translated. Some of these are old. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Another one. Thy beauty, O king, is above that of the sons of men. Another. Thou art wonderfully fair beyond the sons of men. One more. Beautiful. Beautiful art thou above the sons of men. They're all trying to capture how beautiful this guy is, how amazing, how handsome he is. In fact, that last translation captures that in the Hebrew, the first two words are the same word, beautiful, beautiful, or handsome, handsome. It just says the same word twice. And that's not for no reason. It's because language can't actually tell us how, how unbelievably attractive this king is. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see angels flying around the throne room of God and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're not saying it three times because, um, because you know, one plus one plus one equals three or, or, or holy to the third power that there's sometimes, it's, it's this sense of we don't have the word so all we can do is repeat it. And the more times we repeat it, the more powerful it is. You can imagine if we're having a wedding up here and the groom is standing off to the side and the bride begins to come down the aisle, right? And the groom looks and he sees the bride coming. Tears start to form in his eyes and all he can say is, she's so beautiful. She's just beautiful. Isn't she beautiful? What else can he say? There's no words that will get all of it out. Right? And the angels, they don't have the words to say how holy, how majestic, how glorious God is. And so they just repeat it. We're dumbstruck and we just, all I can say is beautiful. Again and again. Again and again. When William Plummer, 19th century scholar, tried to capture the point of this passage, he said this, in religion, everything turns on our view of Christ. What do we think of him? Is he to us incomparable? Do we regard him as fairer than the children of men? Is he or is he not the chiefest among 10,000 and altogether lovely? He says, if, if you love him not... If you admire him not, if you wouldn't on a fair trial die for him, thou art none of his. How do you feel about Jesus? Sometimes some of us, this isn't all of us, some of us, maybe we're tempted to say at this point, well, Justin, I'm just not an emotional person. I'm just not an emotional person. I used to say that. I invented that. 
Listen, uh, you know these personality tests you can take, the Enneagram and other things? There's one called the, um, the, the Myers-Briggs test, and, and on that, it doesn't matter. You don't need to understand all this, but I am an INTJ. T stands for thinking. If you're not a T, you're an F for feeling, right? You're either a thinker or a feeler, one or the other. And when I took the test, I'm not just a T. I'm at the far end, as far down as you can get. Oh, and the I at the beginning stands for introvert. I am an introvert, meaning I, I don't naturally get energized being around people. Relationship isn't my strong suit, and, and I'm a thinker. So emotions scare me, right? But don't you think that God is glorious enough and good enough to even make an introvert swoon? Don't you think that God is good and glorious enough to make book nerds and, and, and so, you know, people who, who just, they think, they think more than they feel. Even those people be overwhelmed with his beauty and his goodness. Is he not at least that lovely? Let's not fool ourselves. How we feel about Jesus, it's not the only indicator, but it is a major indicator of the reality and the quality of our faith. So what is, what is it about Jesus that the sons of Korah want to highlight here? Grace. What causes them to overflow in emotion? What gets them to move from being a T to an F? Grace. Grace was on his lips. Grace. He came to us with grace. We are so broken, and he comes with healing. We're vicious to each other with our thoughts, our words, our actions. We're, we, we get angry and defensive and mean at the drop of the hat, and he's patient. He's kind and tender. Luke 4.22 says, all spoke well of Jesus and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. He wasn't just being nice. He was bringing the very goodness of God, the, the, the word and the presence of God to us. John 1, 14 and 17 says, the word, Jesus, the word of God became flesh. He dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory of the, as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He was the very embodiment of the grace of God, the kindness and tender compassion of God. Think about it. Think about what you see in the Gospels when you read about the life of Jesus. Children ran to him, right? Abused women found him to be the safest place they'd ever been. Prostitutes met in him the only man to ever look at them and didn't want something from them. Screw-ups and losers, sinners, wanted to be with him. They all found in him the answer to their deepest questions. How can I be right with God? How can I know peace? How can I have God as my very own? How do you feel about Jesus? He's full of grace. He's full of grace. Isn't he lovely? Isn't he beautiful? But it gets better. The sons of Korah don't stop there. 
He comes with grace, but he also comes in verse 3 with a sword. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. They praise the king because he's gracious, but he also comes with a sword. And they're, they're thrilled at that. Does that shock you a little bit? That we're happy that Jesus is coming with a sword? Does that, is that awkward? Does that feel a little bit out of step with maybe where we are as a culture? And I think part of the reason, particularly for Christians, that that we find this shocking is because we say things like, well, God is loving, but he's also just, as if those things have nothing to do with each other. Right? We say, well, 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 God is is merciful, but he's also holy. Right? As if those things are opposed to each other. But the Bible does not oppose those things, but the Bible holds those together. You can't have... One without the other. God's love is not opposed to his holiness, justice, or wrath. No, God is love. 1 John 4, 16, God is love. That means that everything he does comes out of love. Everything he does. One theologian said that God's wrath is what happens when his love encounters evil. Did you hear that? It's not opposed to his love. It's what happens when the loving God sees evil. How does this work? How does this work? Well, imagine if in a few minutes we go outside here and we see a man abusing a child. What does love do when we see evil? Do we say, well, you know, who am I to judge? You know, and we walk on. Do we say, um, well, we all have our struggles and we walk off? Do we, do we do that? Do we turn a blind eye to it? Is that what love does? No. No. Love does not turn a blind eye to evil. Love would do everything it could to bring an end to that evil. It will judge it. It will bring holy consequences against it. It will bring an end to it. Wrath, God's judgment is what happens when his love encounters evil. The king has a sword. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 4, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. He goes to war so that the truth would be published and proclaimed throughout the world and believed. Men and women be set free by the truth. He, he goes out so that meekness would flow. Not prideful hubris, not building my own empire in my own name, but beautiful humility would go out into the world. Righteousness would reign. Evil would end. Righteousness would reign. So to review, the sons of Korah, these dead men walking, they overflow with praise for the sacrificed priest king 
who comes in grace to bring an end to evil and to bring about all that is good in God's plan. And what's that look like? What is this king after now? This is our third question. What is he after? In a sense, the sons of Korah, they're about to change the subject, but not really, because it still has everything to do with the goodness of the king. But now we get to see what, what he's after. In a sense, they're saying, you smell like salvation, right? You smell like salvation. You love righteousness, hate evil. You've done it all. What for? For a bride. The king is getting married. The king is getting married. Verse 8, your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from ivory palaces. Stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. And get this, at your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. The sons of Korah are about to, to describe the queen, the queen to be at this point. Who is that? Who is the queen? Well, the Bible from start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, says that the bride of Jesus, the spouse of the Lord, is the people of God, the church. It's consistent throughout the Bible. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah 62, 5. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband declares the Lord. Ephesians 5, Paul talks about marriage and, and how he says, husbands, husbands, just as Christ laid down his life for the church, lay down your life for your wives. You lead them by sacrifice and love and care, just as Jesus leads and loves his bride. And church and, and, and wives love, adore Submit to, just as the church loves, adores, submits to Christ as, as their head. And he sums up in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, 32, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I'm saying that marriage refers to Christ and the church. So the church is the bride of Christ. Verse 10 here in, in Psalm 45 says, Hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. So they're speaking now to the queen. Hear, O daughter, consider. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. When God first calls the people of Israel in Genesis 12, he says to Abraham, the father of the nation, Leave your country, your people, and your father's house. And go to the land I will show you. When God calls a people, when God calls people into his church, he calls them away from who they were and what they were to be with him. Notice the repetition there, the, the verbs there, the commands. Hear, consider, incline your ear. The sons of Korah are trying to get 
the bride's attention, trying to get the queen's attention. Hey, hello, listen. Listen, leave, and come to the king. Come to the king. Look at verse 11. For me, this is amazing. Why would you ever want to leave your old life? Verse 11, the king will desire your beauty. He is all beautiful. He is, he is amazing. And this good king looks at the bride. The king will desire your beauty. He desires you, literally. This phrase means greatly desires, yearning, craving. The, this is the language of the lover. The king feels that way about you. You. Us. He desires to be with you, not the way that maybe Zeus desired the people of Athens. If you know your, your Greek mythology, it was, it was thought that if the people of Greece stopped believing in their gods, their gods would cease to exist. Their gods needed them to believe. Well, this, this king doesn't need his bride that way. No, but he desires her. He desires her because he loves her. He doesn't need anything from her. He desires her. In his book, The Freedom of a Christian, the German theologian Martin Luther compares salvation, the Christian teaching that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He compares it to a marriage between a great king and his, his bride, a former prostitute, a woman of ill repute, a harlot. He doesn't need her. The king doesn't need her. And yet he chooses her to bring her in, to provide for her, to protect her, to set his love on her. And imagine if that's you for a minute. Guys, I know this might be tough, but imagine for a minute. If that's you, you've been brought into the palace of the king. He's protecting you. He's caring for you. He's providing for you. He's rescued you. He's shown you great affection. What do you think she wants from him, this bride? What would she want from him? Gold? She already has everything that's his because she's his wife. A palace? Or him? To be so loved, to be so cared for, to be so... So treated. What does she want from him? She wants him. And that's the, the response here. The king will desire your beauty, and since he is your Lord, bow to him. The word for bow there is actually the word for worship. Jesus loves you, desires you. He has set his affection on you. How could we not worship him? How could our hearts not go back and respond to his kindness to us? This is exactly what happens in, in the, the, the book of the Bible called the Song of Songs, or sometimes it's called the Song of Solomon. The bride of the king there in, in Song of Songs 5.16 says, He is altogether lovely, just like the sons of Korah at the beginning, right? But the bride is saying, He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend. This king is so good. But 
notice he moved first, didn't he? He came to her, set his delight on her. That's grace. God comes to us first. We love because he first loved us, the word says. She couldn't make herself a queen, right? She couldn't make herself a queen just by maybe sticking her pinky out when she drank tea. That, that doesn't make you a queen. Dressing up like a queen wouldn't make you a queen. There's only one way to become a queen. Only by the word of the king. Right? When the king says, I choose you. I choose you. I'm marrying you. I do. I do. And in that moment, she is queen, no matter how many slip-ups she has. No matter if she stumbles in her new high heels, or if she still talks like a sailor a little bit from time to time. She's still queen. She's still queen by his word. Because of his great love, she's been made queen. But that's not all. He also clothes her, or said another way, he makes her beautiful. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the, clean, to the king. All glorious, it could be translated completely majestic. He clothes her with beauty, specifically with his very own goodness, his very own righteousness. We call this the great exchange. When he says, all that I am is yours. Think of that marriage vow. All that I am is yours. All that I have, I give to you. All my love, all my blessing, all my righteousness, they are yours. That's what the king gives to his bride. And the bride, then it's her turn to say the vows, right? All that I am is yours. And all that I have, I give to you. All my debt, my brokenness, my shame, my sin, my regrets, all of it I give to you. And he takes it. He receives it. It's the great exchange. And he paid it all to the full, dying the death that she should have died so that he might be with her forever. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. We are adorned. We are made righteous. We are made beautiful. He puts his robes, his righteousness on us. I want to show you a piece of art that I think captures this a little bit. How does Jesus clothe us? Is it up there? Did the picture not come through? Okay, never mind. It was beautiful. I'll email you later if you want to. Um, here's the deal. The, the, the bridegroom says, you are all glorious. He desires you. You are all together lovely. Do you feel that way? You may not feel altogether lovely. You may not feel completely majestic. Sometimes it's hard for us to just lift our eyes off of the scars, the shame, what we've done, what's been done to us, to see the love in the eyes of our King. He's taken all that on Himself. Listen to what the King says about you 
in the Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 7 and 9. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. You believe that? Can you believe? Isn't he good? The king doesn't rescue the street girl just so that she can have a clean, well-provided room in his castle. He rescues her so that he would never be parted from her again. He wants to be with her. He desires you. He longs to have you with him. Verse 13, All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her with joy and gladness. They are led along as they enter the palace of the king. She's being led to the king. She doesn't just want his stuff, remember. She wants him. The Christian doesn't just want to be forgiven and somehow get out of hell. We want him. We don't just want heaven. Whatever heaven might might have, if he's not there, it's hell. Because we want him. Because we've seen how good he is. How kind he is. How beautiful he is. Full of grace. And so the sons of Korah then address the couple together. They finish by saying to the couple in verse 16, In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Another way to say that is, you guys are going to bear fruit. This, this marriage is fruitful. What's the fruit of a marriage? Is, is family, is children. You're going to be fruitful. In fact, Jonathan Edwards wrote that the spouse of the Son of God, the church, the Lamb's wife is that for which all the universe was made. And God created the world for His Son that He might prepare a bride for Him to bestow His love upon so that the mutual joy between this bride and bridegroom, those are the purpose of creation. That is the reason God created the whole heavens and the earth. That Jesus would have a bride before creation ever He already set His love on you. He already chose you. He already said, I want want her to be with me. And so the sons of Korah end by saying, as men delivered from death, out of the pit of the earth, right, who love the King, who boil over with affection for Christ, in verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. In a sense, they're saying, isn't he good? They're saying to to the nations throughout all generations, isn't he good? Doesn't he smell good to you? Isn't he delightful? Isn't he altogether lovely and beautiful? Don't you want him as your own? He says, you are completely majestic, without flaw. Isn't he good? Well, in a moment, we're going to have a chance to take communion. Um, at that time, you'll, you'll stand up. You'll go back to the table. You'll grab one of the cups there. And some people will take communion as, with their, their immediate family. Some will with their, their um, small groups. Um, but however you want to do it, go, grab it and bring it back. 
um, and we're going to take communion. And I want, as we do this, it, it is a, a few things you need to know. Um, communion is a family meal, right? It's something given to the church by Jesus. And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if he is your king, your husband, then you are welcome to feast. You're welcome to participate. If that's not your story, if you're not there yet, if you're exploring Christianity, we'd encourage you to stay where you are and meditate on this invitation we've been hearing all morning. The invitation to know him, to let him set his love on you. But if you do know him, then as you grab that cup and you come forward and sit back down and you gather for, for taking that communion, I want to have you cast your minds to another, another verse that's going to enrich what we've been hearing there. In the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, in chapter 19, um, we, God has defeated all of his enemies, you know, this stuff we've been looking forward to. And at that point, an angel announces, it's time for the wedding. It's time for the wedding. He says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are taking what's called communion or the Lord's Supper. It's pointing, yes, back to the Passover, but for Christians, even more importantly, it's pointing to the day when Jesus will come back and we will feast with him and celebrate what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. When all we've been hearing about, all in Psalm 45, preparing our hearts, it will come to fruition it will be fulfilled. It will be consummated, right? And so even as you take the cup and you remember that the, the, the juice there is a sign of Jesus pouring out his blood for you and, the, and the, the wafer there is a sign of Jesus' body broken for you, remember he did that so that you would be with him forever, so that he would have you as his own not just to be in his castle, not just to get out of hell, but to be with him. And so we get to celebrate what Christ has done and all that he's going to do for us in eternity. So I invite you now, um, in response to Psalm 45, and the king saying, you are altogether lovely. You are my bride. You are beautiful. Um, we're going to respond by taking communion and, and through worship. So please um, go ahead and, and head back to the table there.